Good morning to you. Friends, we live in a strange age. Morally, we're living in an age of great confusion. Uh, What was once clear and fixed is suddenly fluid and up for grabs. Economically, what once seemed solid suddenly isn't. Uh, Places that can hardly remember inflation are seeing it bust their budgets and erode their savings. Politically, proven solutions are being jettisoned in exchange for for grand experiments. And the larger the experiment, the, the more volatile the outcome and the more fragile the previous status quo becomes. Geopolitically, parts of the world that were mostly peaceful are now at war, and the implication of those actions has caused grain and fuel markets to to shudder and sputter, affecting the whole wider watching world. And then interpersonally. If stressed me is not the best me, and if hurt people hurt people, then is it any wonder that we are seeing strangers morph into shouters over relatively minor matters, even sometimes into fisticuffs over spots at the local Megamart parking lot? Do you see these things in the world today? The wreckage of this brokenness divides neighbors and co-workers, It separates friends, it it fractures families, and and even in our churches, often people can't always seem to get along. Does it not appear, if we were really honest, that more and more we live among broken people in a wider broken culture? These relentless disruptions have led many to two things, despondency and depression. Our context of brokenness is leading some people I know to to almost perpetual anxiety. But what if there was a passage in the Bible that offered battle-tested, pragmatically proven, God-given solutions to these painful situations? And my friends, take heart, because today we are in Philippians 4, in the New Testament, Philippians 4, and we have the answer from heaven to the leaven that has insidiously, perniciously, devastatingly sort of worked its way through the whole batch of dough. Today's passage teaches that broken people in broken contexts can find hope and help and healing in Christ. Today's passage teaches this, that broken people in broken contexts can find hope, help, and healing in Christ. Now, you should have a bulletin in front of you, and it's going to follow along with some slides that are going to come up next to you. And if you can just follow along point by point, hopefully you'll get the point of today's passage. And so as you turn with me in the Word of the Lord to Philippians chapter 4... Let's turn to the Lord of that word in prayer, asking Him to speak to us today. Lord Jesus, we believe You, and You tell us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You tell us that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and training that the man of righteousness would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we ask today that you would take your inspired scripture that is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and you would put it exactly at the cancer of the brokenness amongst us in our age. That you would help us to see how we can excise this tumor and how we can bind us and bond us together through Scripture. Lord, we pray that you take your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word and make us a holy people. I pray that every person who can listen today, whether that's live this morning or will later linger online, I pray that at least one thing would touch them by your Spirit that they can begin to apply and see your Word working in their world. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. We're going to be in Philippians 4, and we're going to start in verse 2, and we're going to go uh, down to verse 7. So the Word of God says in Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So point one today is this. Point one is this. Brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like selflessness. Brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like selflessness. We see this right here in verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Synecdoche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, now Paul says at the end of verse 3 that these women are Christians. These women whose names are written in where? The book of life. So they're saved. Paul says these women are committed Christians, not marginal Christians. Verse 3, these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. Paul says these ladies had a valuable, vital gospel ministry to many in that community. Verse 3, Paul says that these women are right up there with great people in the church like Clement and the rest of Paul's fellow workers. So Euodia and Synecdoche are sisters in Christ. And friends, it seems like they're sort of pillars in the church of God at Philippi. But the Bible also says these two committed Christians were somehow also at odds with one another. Now, the issue is not doctrinal, because everywhere else in the Bible, Paul will call out doctrinal error with biblical truth. And so, since this isn't a doctrinal problem between these two Christian ladies, it would appear that this is certainly an interpersonal problem. 
between two strong Christians who are also seemingly rather strong-willed, <laughs> at least in this matter. Can you relate? Or is this just you know, hypothetical for that other church somewhere else? That's fine. You can remember it for when they need to hear it, right? Uh, <clears throat> nonetheless, the Bible repeatedly shows us that, that even strong Christians can experience interpersonal brokenness. Even strong Christians can experience interpersonal brokenness. In fact, so raw, so real is this situation that some wag once said, and it always stuck with me, to live above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. So, so Paul pleads with these ladies. Uh, notice he doesn't command them. That's really interesting. And I think the reason is for those convinced against their will remain unconvinced still. If Paul uh, uh, commanded them, it would not achieve the end he's trying to get. Paul wants them to experience not just the end of hostility. He wants to move them to real biblical unity. If he commanded them, they would have to make nice publicly while possibly privately still harboring hate in their hearts, right? And if an apostle writes to you and says, do this, your options publicly are limited. (laughs) And so Paul does not command them. He wisely, pastorally, he pleads with these ladies. He pleads with, and this is important, both of these ladies. Verse 2 says, Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an argument or had an interpersonal friction or, or watched someone who had one. But I've noticed that usually one person tends to be more right and one less right. He pleads to both of them. And I would assume one of them was was more right and the other was less right. And and somebody started it. And at least one of them must keep stoking it because Proverbs 26.20 says, Without wood, the fire goes out. Friends, I don't know if you've been told this, but I hope you hear this. You don't have to attend every fight to which you're invited. If one side will cease and desist, it can become really hard for the other side to perpetually persist. Now, notice Paul pleads that these scrapping saints agree with each other in what way? In the Lord. That's really important in our passage. In the Lord. That last clause is critical. Paul does not ask them to merely agree. You see, the New Testament does not call us to unanimity. It calls us to unity. And those are different things. Unanimity would mean that these ladies must agree in the situation. And that's the very point of contention. Paul does not call them to that. He doesn't call them to unanimity. He calls them to unity. He calls them to agree in what? In the Lord. In the Lord. You see, humans often see things differently. But Christians can set aside those legitimate differences for the sake of Christ and the advance of His kingdom. That's a choice we can make, isn't it? Now, 
We don't know what this dispute was about. Uh, the Bible is careful to conceal the nature of the conflict from us. Uh, maybe it was a petty rivalry that formed between effective people who became jealous of one another and their position in the church. Uh, maybe one of them wanted to do tried and true old school ministry and the other one wanted to put new wine and new wineskins and try new things. I don't know. What I do know is that Satan can find a million reasons, a million things to divide us because God intentionally has called us out of different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different giftings. He intentionally, Christ intentionally distributes within his church, according to scripture, different gifts. And it seems obvious he gives us different passions why? So that all the aspects of a healthy church would be resident within the, the body of Christ. That different people, there's a knee, and, and, and there's a hand, and, and there's a mouth. You, you know these people in the body, right? You know who you run to with a prayer request, and who's usually going to say yes to do some service project, and, and who can explain scripture to you, because that's how a body that's healthy functions. And that's how God has designed the body to function, to be utterly God-dependent. We get that but also to be interdependent. And we kind of struggle with that, right? That's hard. And so this great strength of, of diversity, God-given diversity, well, it can cause great friction unless we are very careful. Unless we major on the majors instead of on the minors. If we do not keep the main thing the main thing, then little things will make us irritable and unchristlike towards one another. If we don't put Christ first and, and the greater good next, we can start to chafe when other brothers and sisters do not see things our way. And of course, our way is always the right way. Just ask us, right? Yeah. The solution is found in verse 2, and it's this, to agree in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. And the practical implementation of that agreeing is found in verse 5. Verse 5 commands every one of us to let our gentleness be evident to all. Let our gentleness be evident to all. Uh, gentleness is a powerful Greek word. It's uh, epikase. And epikase is super difficult to translate into one English word. And so venerable New Testament scholar Kenneth Woost translates this word, this verse, extremely well in many words. He says, let your sweet reasonableness, epi case, your forbearance, epi case, your being satisfied with less than you are due, epi case, become known to all men. Are you getting a sense of what gentleness means? Uh, epi case carries the idea of a humble non-retaliatory spirit. What we're known for in Jersey, right? <laughs> a Christ-like selflessness which subordinates one's own rights and privileges and even one's own hurts for the sake of Christ and the unity of the body. Epi case can extend kindness and graciousness in response to legitimate injustice. 
Epicase offers magnanimity and charity towards the faults of others. It offers mercy towards the failures of others. It extends grace in the face of the hurts caused by others. Friends, if we want to be real honest, Epicase is almost the essence of what Philippians calls us to earlier, and that is Christ-likeness. Do you remember from earlier in this letter, leave your finger in Philippians 4, go back to Philippians 2, and start at verse 3. And one of the central doctrinal pieces of Philippians is found in Philippians 2. And the Bible says this in Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. You see, each of you should not only look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Remember Christ, verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to, but instead he made himself nothing, uh, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Tell you a little secret, my friends. Interpersonal brokenness cannot be healed by forever recalling each other's record of past wrongs committed. You're not going to get past it by constantly reviewing it. Equally, interpersonal brokenness cannot be healed by vigilantly parsing each passing comment someone says, uh, checking for the intonation, for the possible presence of perceived slight, whether it was actually intended or not. My friends, brokenness between people is healed through Christ-like selflessness. My friends, let your gentleness be evident to all Now, the sad spectacle of these dear sisters locking horns over minor matters, well, that brings us to our second point today. For if the cancer of interpersonal brokenness is left to linger too long without the balm of Christ-like selflessness being applied, generally speaking, that cancer will spread. And it will spread throughout other members of the body who are asked to pick sides. Can you believe he said this? Can you believe she did this? Can you side with me on this? And that's just what the Apostle Paul is seeking very hard to avoid in the church at Philippi. Point two in your outlines today, point two on your screen today is this. Brokenness within the church can be healed through Christ-like shepherding. Brokenness within the church can be healed through Christ-like shepherding. Paul realizes that perhaps this conflict has gotten to a point where reconciliation is not easily possible without the, the gracious intervention of a respected other. And so we see in verse 3 exactly this. Paul writes, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow. Somebody he's calling loyal yoke fellow. Help these women 
who have contended at my side. He's calling in another brother. This person, this loyal yoke fellow. Loyal yoke fellow is another interesting word. It's uh, suzogos, and it, it evokes the image of a yoke that, that harnesses two oxen together so that they can plow more effectively collectively. You can do more together. This guy's a guy that can kind of be the harness that brings people together so they are better. Now, Loyal Yoke Fellow may be a nickname that he is called. It may be a proper name, right? So we have people that we know that are named Charity. (laughs) That's a proper name. We also know people that in the Bible are given names that are a nickname. Uh, In the early church, often at one's baptism, new Christians were given a new name to match their new standing in Christ. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are an example. Barnabas is not actually named Barnabas. It's what the church called him because of what he was like. Do you remember his original name in the book of Acts? Joseph, who they called Barnabas. What does Barnabas mean? It means son of encouragement. You could be called worse by the church, amen? Yeah. So whether loyal yoke fellow is a proper name or a nickname, or a description of character, this saint knew how to bring people together. Suzagos was gentle and respected and some kind of leader in the church. And so Paul rightly assumed when he wrote his letter that everyone would know exactly who he was referring to. The point is this. Sometimes reconciliation requires third-party intervention. And this is especially true when interpersonal brokenness is threatening rifts in the wider congregation, and therefore a peacemaker is needed to shepherd the situation out of open war. So Paul calls a wise shepherd to shepherd God's sheep out of a bad situation. Now, I want to tell you about some other names here because they're kind of ironic. Um, Euodius means prosperous journey. And uh, synecdoche means pleasant acquaintance. But sadly, the entire church at Philippi was not on a prosperous journey. (laughs) Nor were they having pleasant acquaintances on a given Sunday. Why? Because two dear sisters, two saints of prominence and consequence, were not agreeing in the Lord. Brokenness between people can be healed through Christ-like selflessness. And brokenness within our churches can be healed through Christ-like shepherding. Um, There's a German philosopher. I don't know if you ever had to take a philosophy class. There's a famous guy named Schopenhauer. And uh, he compared uh, the human race to a pack of porcupines huddling together on a cold winter's night. And he said, you know, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth, but the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt each other with our quills. Can you see the imagery? The little porcupines come together, but porcupines have big quills, right? We need each other, but we also needle each other. 
And if we are not careful in the lonely night of winter, eventually we will begin to get tired of being needled, and so we drift apart. But then what happens? We, we wander out on our own because no one needles us, but we have no one to give us warmth, and so we freeze in our loneliness, ineffective and unproductive. Hmm. And this is why Ephesians 4 urges us to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. You don't have to forgive people if they don't sin against you. So what's the Bible assuming? People in church are going to sin against you. Kind of fill that in, right? To be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's a pretty heavy kind of forgiveness, isn't it? This is why Colossians 3 urges us as God's chosen people to clothe yourselves with compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness, and patience, to bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. The Bible then specifically says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. Huh. Now, so far we focused on brokenness between people and within churches, but what about brokenness within our wider context, okay? Well, let's think about the wider context in which Paul is penning his epistle to the Philippians, right? So Paul is writing this letter from prison. It's one of his prison epistles. He is chained to the Praetorian Guard, according to the epistle, and when he writes this, he may, may well never see his friends in Philippi again, as far as he knows. And so the church had sent a wonderful saint to minister to Paul, trapped in prison, chained to guards. It was a man named Epaphroditus. And what happened to this great man? Well, if you read the letter, the man they sent to comfort Paul got so sick that he's almost died. It just isn't getting sunny yet, is it? <laughs> it's just getting less and less sunny. It's getting more and more dark. And, and, and then you read, well, what's happening in the church in Philippi? Paul's in prison. The men they sent to minister him almost dies, coming to help him. So what's happening in the church? Well, the church is apparently being opposed so vigorously by Satan's minions that Paul has to open his letter with this. Hey, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So what's happening in Philippi? Frightening opposition. <laughs> Yeah, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, then you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. These are suffering saints who are meeting intense opposition from their community for the gospel. Paul is in prison. He may never be released, and the person they've sent to minister almost dies. Um, Paul writes from a context of personal brokenness to a people in a context of widespread 
brokenness. And that brings us to point three today, friends. Brokenness in our wider context. So when the whole world seems to be coming apart, right, it's, it's difficult. Brokenness in our wider context can produce despondency and depression, which can be healed through rejoicing in Christ. Brokenness in our wider context can, can, can produce despondency and depression, and that can be healed through rejoicing in Christ. Listen to what Paul commands in verse 4. To these folks in this depressing, despondent situation. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'm going to say it again, rejoice. Now, friends, happiness is based on what happens. Happiness is therefore fleeting. Because what happens to us is not always perpetually pleasant in a fallen world. Amen? just reality. However, to rejoice is a choice. It is something that we decide to do despite our circumstances. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Does there seem to be a lot of exceptions to always? Never. Right? Paul is not commanding Christians to never be sad. Ecclesiastes tells us, for everything there is a season, and a time for every manner under heaven, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. The Bible tells us the Lord Jesus wept. It's the easiest verse to memorize if you're asked. You just, Jesus wept. That's a verse, and most people can say I can memorize at least one verse, right? Getting the reference right, then you're, you know, that's the part you've got to struggle with. <laughs> The Bible tells us Jesus wept, and what this scripture is saying is that even in the midst of brokenness, we don't have to let the situation break us. You might be in a situation of brokenness, but you get to choose whether it breaks us. We can choose instead to rejoice in the Lord. We can choose to focus on what we have in Christ instead of what we lack In the moment. The fact that Paul has to say this twice is a clear indication that it is not always going to be easy to be joyous. And so I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Karl Barth used to say, there is a defiant nevertheless in Christian joy. In Acts 16, Paul was sitting in a jail in Philippi. He had been wrongly accused. He'd been publicly stripped. He'd been brutally beaten. And nevertheless, he and his companions were singing praises to Jesus at midnight, though each octave uttered probably caused a bruised rib to bark in pain. Paul's situation was cold and dark, but his heart was strangely warmed. Amen? Friends, it is hard when you're, when you're dealing with brokenness, when you're dealing with interpersonal brokenness, when you're dealing with difficult relationships, I just want to tell you a little secret. It's hard to stay mad or be sad when you're glad. Would you agree with that? It is hard to stay mad and be sad when instead you are glad. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, and all He has done for us, and all He has promised us, and all that is in store for us, 
Despondency and depression can abate. Theologian J.I. Packer used to say, joy is not an accident of temperament or an unpredictable providence. Joy is a matter of choice. Joy is a matter of choice. It is a choice that the prophet Habakkuk made when he wrote this. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. It is a choice when Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he writes, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for your life. It is a choice that Paul lays out in Romans 12.12. My wife and I were speaking on this verse as we drove in this morning. Romans 12.12. It's good for the dyslexic. It goes either way, right? Romans 12.12. He writes, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Look, if you're in a difficult situation, you can choose to be joyful in hope or you can choose to be kind of hopeless in hope. Right? One's biblical. One's natural. One's pitiful. One's wonderful. One will lead you closer to Christ and make you a contagious Christian, and one will lead you further from Christ and will make you not an effective and a productive ambassador for Christ. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. So that means there will be affliction and it won't always go away right away. But we can be patient in affliction. And lastly, be faithful in prayer. So those Satan can't beat with depression and despondency, and sadly it seems to me he's beating many in those areas. If he can't beat you with depression and despondency over the darkness around us, he will try to beat you with anxiety. And I've seen many saints where this becomes an iron grip over their heart. And that brings us to point four today. Brokenness in our wider context can produce anxiety, which can be healed by turning worry into prayer. Brokenness in our wider context can produce anxiety, which can be healed by turning worry into prayer. And here it is, very clearly, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He links not being anxious with instead being prayerful, and he uses four different words to do it, doesn't he? So, friends, I want to ask you, whatever is frightening you, whatever is keeping you up at night, you can either take it to Jesus or you can rehearse the worst until you end up in a hearse. Those are your options. And, and I mean this very clearly. So, uh, I, way back, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I came across this little card and I kept it. We used to keep it in, in our home. It was taped up in different places. I now carry it around in my wallet because we seem to keep moving homes all the time. Uh, but I keep the card. And it's very simple. Worry bad. Prayer good. And at the bottom, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with supplication, present your request to God. Worry bad. Prayer good. 
Got it? And I don't know if you need to maybe make a little card like this and put it somewhere that where your anxiety most flutters, you're called to remember. But I would encourage you, if that's something that's challenging to you, this might be a verse to work through. Many times when I've been overwhelmed, I return to this verse. Uh, Paolo knows me pretty well. I am a problem solver by nature. It's part of my gift mix. Now, the upside of that is I can solve problems. The downside of that is I tend to think about problems. <laughs> and so our, our ministry generally has me wearing many hats. I serve on many boards. I have a hand in many pots. I'm in many different churches. And all of those places always have significant challenges. And the devil has a way to make those challenges seem like utterly unrelenting challenges. Can you relate? Yeah. Now, I can do one of two things. I can worry about it and make myself miserable, and I've tried that many times. Or I can pray about it and invite the King of Kings to either solve the problem or guard my heart in the problem. And notice there are multiple words for prayer in this one little verse, because prayer is the biblical antidote to worry. Um, we all know that worry is unproductive and self-destructive. We know that, right? If, if your neighbor, your kid, your grandmother is worried, you go, well, that's unproductive. You're not going to help anything by worrying. And we know that it's self-destructive, that it actually kind of fills you with fear and dread and gets in your head. It's unproductive and self-destructive. Did you know that God's Word says the antidote, prayer, is highly productive and soul-enriching? Prayer is highly productive because the Bible says the prayer of one righteous man availeth much. That's highly productive wording. The prayer of one guy in a sea of nobody else following did stuff. And it goes to one guy, a prophet, in a difficult time, in the darkest days, with the worst king in Israel, with the worst wife a king ever had, who's so bad that her name becomes the name that's singled out for iniquity in the book of Revelation. If you think you're going through a hard time, that was a hard time. And that one man, he prayed, and God moved. Because the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, uh, some of you are familiar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It had a famous Spurgeon's Tabernacle. There was a man named A.C. Dixon. And he used to say this, and I, and I love it. When we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. And when we rely upon education, we get what education can do. And when we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. And there are many churches organized, galvanized, systematized, elegant, eloquent, relevant, with a program for everything from the left-handed, red-headed midget ministry down to the three-year-olds. But do we have a hold of the hem of the garment? Like if he isn't in it, all of our deeds will do nothing. My friends, prayer is not only highly productive, but it's also soul enriching. For in praying, God promises to guard our hearts 
in Christ Jesus. And the word for guard here is an amazing word. It is a military word in verse 7. It means to surround and protect like having a garrison in a fortified city. Uh, As we turn our worries over to Jesus in prayer, Jesus may or may not immediately solve the problem. But if you will permit him, he will guard your heart and mind. You see, Satan attempts to bombard our minds with worry. And that can be replaced with peace. But it can only come from the Prince of Peace. Satan's attempt to strangle our hearts with anxiety. And if you are willing to turn that issue into prayer and then leave it there with Jesus, Jesus can, like a garrison of seasoned Roman centurions, Make your heart and mind unscalable to what seemed earlier terrible. If I had to put it really bluntly, it's Jesus or worry. It's Jesus or anxiety. It's Jesus or interpersonal conflict. It's Jesus or church conflict. And that brings us to point five today. Our final point today, hope Help and healing are available through Jesus Christ. Hope, help, and healing are available through Jesus Christ. Listen in again to the sturdy spine that makes this passage stand up. Listen to verse 2. Agree with each other in the Lord. Now go to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Now go to verse 5. The Lord is near. Now go to verse 6. Present your requests. To God. Now go to verse 7. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. My friend, if you are here today and you're running out of hope, if you're here today and you need help, if you're here today and you need healing, I want you to do this. I want you to look to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the God of hope. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not what you can do, what He can do in you. Jesus is the God of hope. Jesus is the great helper. Hebrews 13.6 says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Friends, Jesus is also the great healer. In the Old Testament, God chose one of His names as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And in the New Testament, Jesus is known as the great physician. And so if you are here today and you need hope, you need help, you need healing, I want to encourage you, look to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness is sufficient to deal with our personal brokenness. Emulating Jesus' selflessness can heal our interpersonal brokenness. Jesus' shepherds can heal a church's brokenness if we let them. Rejoicing in Christ can heal our despondency and our depression if we let Him. And prayers and petitions and requests given with thanksgiving can heal our anxieties if we let Him. Here's the only question. Will you 
let him. Let's pray.